The UK Investor Magazine podcast is brought to you in association with Oanda, the broker of choice for traders who want a smarter way to trade. Trade with Oanda and get one year's subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into an Aberdeen investment trust in the Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth Trust. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by Nalika De Silva, who is the Head of Private Market Solutions at Aberdeen. Nalika, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, hi. No, uh, glad to be here. Uh, look forward to the chat. So we're going to be discussing the Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth Trust. We're going to be talking about some of the holdings and, and the weightings a little bit later on in the podcast. But before we get into it, please would be able to give us an introduction both to yourself, please, Nalika, and uh, the a bit of background on the trust. Sure. Um, so, uh, name's Nalika Silva. As um, I look after private market solutions here at um, at Aberdeen, and I'm responsible and the chair of the investment committee for um, ADIG, the Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth um, Investment Trust. Um, and I look after a number of mandates uh, on behalf of institutional and uh, retail clients um, uh, that span globally, investing across uh, both public and private markets, but primarily looking at the investments into the private markets arena, which is involving. Uh, venture capital, private equity, infrastructure, real estate, natural resources, and then the financing of those areas in, in private credits. So um, quite a broad gambit. We um, uh, look after about a billion dollars worth of assets um, as a desk and, and represent about $80 billion uh, within uh, the context of private markets here at Aberdeen. So please would be able to give us some information, a little bit of background, uh, Nalika, on how the, the trust is is structured, because preparing for this podcast, it was quite interesting to see that it is a structure that you'd usually see, and, and, and it's typical of, of larger pension funds, which isn't usually available to, to retail investors. So it'd be good to if you could give us a bit of background on, on how that is, how that's comprised and, and how the uh, how the weightings of, of the trust are made up. Sure. No, that's absolutely right. The um, the trust is a pretty unique offering in terms of, you know, it provides what we describe as a, as a total portfolio asset allocation across public and private markets, which you would, um, you know, like you said, would be seen um, from large um, endowments, pension funds, uh, family offices globally. Um, and that comprises really a mix of um, different types of what we describe as risk premium or um, so risk characteristics in the portfolio. So you've got equities and fixed income, but more traditional in nature. Uh, and then inside of um, equities and fixed income, we've broken that down into um, private equity type assets, uh, private credit type assets. Um, and then in the basket that we describe as real assets, these are things like investing in infrastructure, investing in um, uh, real estate, things that have got sort of long-term inflation characteristics. Uh, the portfolio comprises um, of those assets as well. So the portfolio itself, is, is a blended portfolio and it, it's roughly about a 50-50 mix at present about public assets and private assets. Um, so if you look at sort of the Canadian pension fund or larger sort of family offices, the, the mix of assets typically lie around sort of 60-40 public to private uh, and we're roughly about a 50-50 split. 
And if I just sort of maybe just describe some of the um, the weightings within that, as as you asked, we we sort of break things down into um, different kind of risk categories or risk buckets. And um, the first category is described as sort of cash and defensive assets, so that's cash and sort of money markets. Um, so really, really safe defensive types of investments. That's about eleven percent of the portfolio. We then what, describe what we call sort of high yielding fixed income, and the high yielding fixed income is things like emerging market bonds, um, credit, both in the public space and the private space, that's sort of lending to governments or companies of high quality corporates. Uh, so 28% in that, that segment. Um, real assets being a really big focus of the portfolio, being inflation linked cash flows across infrastructure projects uh, around the world. Uh, that's about 26% of the portfolio. And then we've got uh, what we call device, diversifying opportunities. The diversifying opportunities are things that are uncorrelated to markets or less correlated to markets. And they will make up things like what we describe as sort of um, royalties or um, um, areas of the market that aren't sensitive to economic activity, um, shipping, uh, things like litigation, finance, um, healthcare royalties, and that's about 15% of the portfolio. And um, and the last is equity growth, and that's a combination of uh, public equities and our private equity holdings, and that makes up about 20% of the portfolio um, at the moment. Thank you. So we're going to be discussing a little bit later on in the podcast about how some of those weightings has, have moved uh, over the last year and, and we'll try and get some uh, some reasons for that. But let, let's start off with looking at how the the NAV has progressed so far this year. So, you know, looking at a, at a NAV currently at around 117p, that, that may have moved slightly the last uh, couple of days. But we, we've seen a steady increase in the NAV so far this year, but we, we've seen a, an increasing discount now at around 25%. I mean, from where you're sitting, what do you feel are the, the biggest drivers of, of this expansion of the discount so far? Yeah, I think uh, partly to do with kind of the, the risk environment that investors are facing at the moment where, you know, market uncertainty continues to be, you know, at all time highs. We're looking at sort of the coming out of the, the aftermath of the banking crisis um, you know, inflation is still a major consideration around the world. What's going to be happening in the kind of the policy environment with rates, uh, and uh, and we're not out of the woods um, in terms of economic growth and recession. Um, so I think from investors looking at sort of stocks and bonds and, and equities generally, and investment trusts aren't immune from that. Uh, we think investors are probably sort of slightly more risk off at this perspective, and and that's what's driven the discounts um, to date. The um, the NAV performance, as you say, it has been ticking up nicely. We're up, uh, you know. Kind of just over three percent um, year to date, um, and doing kind of exactly what we said on the tin. So, from my perspective, I think it, it'll it'll be you know sort of one investors being um, more um, I guess conscious about looking through the portfolio in a bit more detail. And once they've done that, then I think um, we've got two things to to hopefully kind of drive the the discount uh, to NAV uh, people understanding the portfolio and really being comfortable with the dividend profile that we're we're providing um, investors. So when we're looking at the the private assets, do you feel that there's an element that the market is maybe pricing in a potential reduction in the nav of the private assets, which haven't actually been been priced in um, so far, and maybe predicting this is going to to happen in the in the future? I mean, that's something that if you look across uh, private assets, investment trusts, some of those do have significant discounts do you think that's something that's playing into to the current discount that that we see and you know i think that the big question is here for, from uh, 
your perspective, do, do you see this discount start to come back up or do you think it's inev- inevitable that we do see some of the navs for private assets start to, to maybe change and, and sort of go down to meet that discount later on in the year? Yeah, I think um, I think there are some segments of the market that probably um, sort of warrants a bit of caution around sort of valuations. And I think the private equity and sort of venture capital aspects of, of private market portfolios tend to fall into the category. I think from an ADIG standpoint, I think, uh, you know, looking a little bit closer, as I described the different types of assets, in the board, we, we don't really have that much private equity as a percentage of the entire portfolio. It actually sits about 9% of, of the fund. So, yeah. okay. um, so you know, if, if the 50% of the portfolios get construed as private equity, then I could understand perhaps the discount being kind of, um, you know, at those levels. But the reality is that we've only got 9% in private equity. Um, when it comes to the other private assets, such as private credit, the infrastructure assets, you know, um, I think these assets are, you know, are relatively, you know, fairly marked. I think the, the rates environment and the risk environment will still affect discount rates, but not to the extent that we've been priced at a 25% discount. In fact, if we look at kind of comparable peers, um, you know, some of them are trading at premiums to NAV on the infrastructure side um, and have probably traded to small discounts over the short, uh, the last of, you know, 12 months when we've had the mini budget crisis and a few other things where, where investors got uh, spooked. But um, my my view is that there'll be certain pockets that will probably see some write downs in terms of valuations at the um, at, you know at the fringe end of of private equity. I think a lot of the marks now have um, have already happened. Q four uh, valuations have made that met, you know made their way into um, you know sort of valuation and pricing of NAVs uh, across the sector. So we're seeing you know any any kind of impact around that sort of being absorbed into market pricing. Uh, but I think there is a nervousness around private markets generally because in retail investors in particular don't have a lot of visibility to to how these app assets operate. And and what we've been trying to do is provide really a lot more color and coverage on these types of assets to explain there's actually a really big difference between private equity or venture capital to private markets, which includes the likes of infrastructure and private credits and, and you know real estate type assets. When we're looking at the uh, the private side of the market, it was actually just looking here at some of the commentary from the trust that that last year, I believe you, you were selling down publicly held equity and public assets and then investing that back into to privately held investments. Two questions here with that. I mean, looking back at that decision, I mean, were you happy with it? Were you happy with how that's uh, performed? And I mean, is that something that you expect to, to see more of in terms of selling public to to invest in in private assets this year and also please to get a bit of uh, an idea about the thinking about what why you're doing this sure uh, so i'll sort of break that up into, into, into two parts one is sort of the transition of the portfolio over the last couple of years where we we did sell down uh, liquid the liquid part of the portfolio and um, put that into the private end of the spectrum and um so going kind of through COVID uh, was a pretty interesting time of investing for, for many of us. But um, what we felt the portfolio needed was a bit more stability in its income uh, generation capacity. So when we sold down our liquid uh, parts of the baskets, we really sold down from the fixed income category at the beginning. So we sold what we described as more junior or unsecured parts of the marketplace that we're in. So if there was in the event of defaults um, or market instability, uh, those assets would have been marked down quite heavily or could have resulted in defaults. And we sold out of a lot of the pr- private, well, the, the credit aspects of that and and invested in private credit, which was senior secured loans with high quality corporates, just in the private form, generating much higher spreads for the equivalent level of risk or better levels of risk. So uh, assets that were secured against um, hard assets or IP or inventory 
uh, and that generated. Um, and so we were, we were pretty happy with that decision um, um, at that time. The next was the equities basket. And, <clears throat> you know, sort of going through kind of the early, late part of 2020 into 2021, you know, there was a, a huge amount of you know, market volatility going on. And, and we felt actually we weren't being rewarded for the equity risk and the type of equities that we were holding were uh, very much sort of, you know, passive equity beta in the portfolio. Um, and we just felt that we just weren't being rewarded for the risk. So we sold out of that and, and really sort of reallocate that into what I call the real assets expansion. So when we moved into, let's call it September 2021, um, you might recall there was a tech sell off. Uh, this was just as the Ukraine crisis was kind of kicking off at the same time. Um, so we felt that we, what we needed to do is reposition the equities. So we, we sold out a, a quite a significant chunk of equities and then replaced that with what we described as defensive equities. So things that were sort of linked to a kind of more uh, steady cash flows. So uh, less cyclically driven um, equity assets. Um, at the same time, we said so we reduced our UK mid cap position. So things that were more kind of growth oriented, we, we took off the table um, and then invested in more listed infrastructure, um, more sort of um, real estate that had two or three different dimensions to it, sort of social housing, things of areas of, of that of that nature. Uh, and then as we sort of progressed through that, we went through the, the period of, I guess, the end of 2022, which way we had the UK guilt and LDI crisis that kind of hit us. Um, at that point, we were very, very defensively positioned because we sold um, uh, down on, on those equities. Now, we did have a bit of a rally in the early part of 2023, uh, which we didn't feel like we missed out a heck of on, on that, to be honest, because uh, given all the volatility and, and the weighting of listed equities, only down to about, when we think about our, our pure play equities, we're, we're kind of less than 10% of the portfolio in equities now. So we really took a, a very defensive position on, on equities. Um, and only now, um, uh, if you asked, you know, just asked whether what, what are we going to do from here? I think there's definitely a home for equities as we, as we see a re-rating uh, as we come through the back of the year. And if we see, you know, kind of, uh, the central banks sort of relax policy a little bit and we see kind of growth in different parts of the you know the global marketplace we've already started taking positions to reallocate out of fixed income into into equities and, and capture some of the growth um and we're and we're tilting to um to china at the moment and we're slowly building up a position uh in china as we watch china reopen and hopefully some of the uh the emerging market uh, dynamics start playing out in a more positive uh, you know sort of frame of mind uh, perhaps as you know, the US might move into recession towards the back end of the year. So there's some questions that we have on the equity side of thing that we, I think we'll touch on a little bit later on uh, in, in the podcast. But you know, st- staying um, with the, the private side of things, and I think it's a good question to try and get an understanding of how the how the trust is is structured in terms of the the types of investments that you're holding within the private markets. So do you go out and buy the underlying assets? So, you know, whether that's credits, you know, individual uh, property units, or or are you actually going out and investing in in managers that are able, that that are investing in the, in these areas? And how does that impact your ability to be nimble in a situation as, as you just outlined there, where, where we may see a bit of volatility, uh, later on in the market, and there may be some opportunities that, that could see a, a situation where you want to, to realign the portfolio. I mean, just a, a good sort of overview of, of the private holdings there and, and how they're held and how, how nimble you can be with them. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we, we access the private markets and across the full gambit of, of access routes. So we can do that through um, you know, direct investments or co-investments alongside fund investments. Uh, we invest alongside managers you know, inside of their funds. 
um, and we do secondaries that we bought as sort of packages of, of fund investments together, um, as well as you know investing sort of when we say investing in managers, we also have a position where we actually invest in the manager itself. So we earn the same fees that they they earn, which is a really interesting investment proposition in of itself. Okay. So um, so the, the structure uh, and and through that nature, we we can be. I wouldn't say um, you know it's not like an equity that you can sell. Uh, tomorrow if you needed to get out but we can control the cash flows and the timing of those cash flows um, to a certain extent and so um, you might have seen throughout the year um, a couple of years well uh, going back 18 months ago we took a position um, on a secondary trade on some infrastructure assets called um, you know PEF1 which is DWS as um, infrastructure program where it was a, a really sort of a late stage fund that was exiting some assets and we managed to buy them at a discount um, and in you know twelve to eighteen months, the assets were sold, and we received the capital back, and we did about a forty percent return, uh, which was an excellent transaction uh, for for ADIG to to generate returns over the short term. So you can be quite nimble in that sense. Um, what we tend to do um, because we're not we're not um, a trading portfolio in the sense that we're not churning the portfolio you know every day or every week, particularly on the private side. So what we're there to do is be dynamic in where we allocate our capital to. So if I take um, the real assets portfolio. For example, we've got, um, if I bring kind of three to life at the moment, we've got um, a program of what we describe as core infrastructure. So transport, renewable energy, um, utility type assets, generating returns across Europe and, and internationally. And those will have assets that um, we know what the exit program looks like. So when we have a choice to sell an asset, we'll elect to, to sell an asset and reinvest the capital. And uh, we announced sort of earlier, well, so back in December, and we received the proceeds in Q1, is that we sold our position in what was called the I-77 toll road, where which is a toll road in the US, um, you know, going in and out of North Carolina and Charlotte, North Carolina. And, uh, you know, we bought in, it did about three times the money that we expected to to get. And so, you know, 60% odd return. And, um, and we were fortunate enough to be able to exit that asset at a really, you know, um, pivotal time in terms of where we thought we were going to reallocate that capital into liquid markets. So, so it's not, um, yeah, it's not that we can't be dynamic um, in these events, but private markets tend to be um, held for you know three to five years in in, in nature, and, and the majority of our portfolio um, is long term in nature. But we'll have the possibility to uh, to choose an exit and investment when we think the time is right. Lovely. So, just going back to to the public equities uh, now. So, we, we you outlined there. I think it's not about nine percent allocated to to public equities at, at this point in time. It, it would be good to get you a little bit more information, if, if we may, on how that's allocated across different geographies and, and different sectors. You, you did provide some uh, information there and you mentioned that you were looking at China, but it, it would be good to get your perspective of, of how those holdings could perform going forward and where you see equity markets going and, and, and whether you think when you're looking at the 9%, whether that is you know, maybe sufficient to take advantage of, of what we could see? Or, or is it a case that you're maybe sort of holding off and, and as you have been selling down the public side to go into private, you know, do you see that this 9% becomes a larger proportion of the of the portfolio if we see weakness in, in the wider equity markets? Sure, absolutely. I think, I mean, like I said, I, I think there's definitely a role for equities as, as markets rebound and repricing happens. I think um, we sort of feel we have plenty of, um, you know, return generators in the portfolio that we don't need to take a lot of equity risk uh, to deliver our 6% target, which is um, what we intend to do year on year um, over a rolling seven-year period, sorry, rolling five-year period. Um, and, and 
markets themselves really, from my perspective, haven't really shown signs of, of strong equity growth in the near term. We're seeing the impact of, you know, input costs rising, you know, corporate costs. We're going through a, a period where, you know, financing costs are, are increasing as well. Um, we, we are focused on certain parts of the market, whether it be sort of technologically sort of driven areas where uh, potentially, you know, automation in some of these areas might be, you know, beneficial to corporate earnings. But overall, um, what we're really at at this particular juncture is waiting for signals that uh, we're going to see um, kind of, I guess, pricing levels, you know, comparable to where corporate earnings are, uh, kind of starting to level out. And and that we think will probably happen towards the back end of this year. We're particularly, you know, sort of closely watching what, what's happening in the U.S. from a you know recession standpoint, where the U.S. will get into a recession or a technical recession, which will drive markets even further. And we don't really need to take any of that risk on right now. Um, but when we, when we think about that rotation between um, re- releasing capital back from the private side as we get receipts back from sales of businesses, which we're, we're generating at the moment, from private credit, which is maturing, um, and we also have, like I said, 11% in cash and defensive and money markets assets, you know, we've got quite a lot of, uh, you know, firepower to be able to kind of switch into equities when the time is right. And and as we know, equities, we can implement quickly and move into the market. So we're, we're, we're dipping our toes into China at the moment just to... You know, sort of watch that. I think um, there was a lot of exuberance that when China reopened, the markets were rebound. I think what we're seeing is that you know China is still going through its um, you know uh, sort of reopening phase, uh, and what that means for kind of the global market. Um, and I think global trade um, and some of the, the factors around global trade from a macro standpoint will drive our view around equities. Um, you know, towards the back end of this year, so we we definitely will see some rotation into equities. I think the time at the moment we're just being cautious. Thank you. That, that's that's fascinating. So, just a few points now on the on the macro picture, if if we may. So, I would, there's two elements I, I think to this, uh, Nalika. You know, first of all, how have you been been managing interest rate risk within the portfolio? Maybe if you could touch on some of the the holdings that you have there that are maybe linked to to interest rates or, or even uh, inflation. And then, you know, sort of from where you're sitting, it'd be good to get your perspective on on the outlook for the for the macro picture. Of course, we're talking about interest rates. We've been over the last twelve to eighteen months on a significant hike, hiking cycle. It'd be good to get your personal views on how you see that that playing out. You know, do do you think a lot of the hikes uh, are already done? You know, there's talk, a lot of talk of of a pause at the moment. Um, it'd be good to get your personal opinion of. You know, are we towards the end of this hiking cycle now? Sure, um, it's the uh, sort of where, where the crystal ball kind of kind of comes in, really, doesn't it? The um, I'm um, I'm of the view that the hike, the rate hiking cycle isn't over yet. Um, it, you know, central banks have a role to play to try and control you know inflation, and I don't think we've seen the signs of inflation rolling over to the extent that they can take their uh, foot off of that um, sort of particular lever. Um, and you know we're seeing the ECB kind of signaling that they're, they're kind of raising rates as well. Um, the Fed is you know um, is trying not to break too many things in, its pro- in, in the process, but you know they, they um, had to deal with the kind of the second order effects of the banking market, and you know SVB led to Credit Suisse, and Credit Suisse you know uh, you know has, has led to a whole lot of um, you know continued I guess um, weakness in, in in the banking sector. So um, I think we're we're not yet out of the the rates um, environment. Um, how that means what that means for the put portfolio is we positioned back in twenty. Ooh, I want to say back in the twenty one, uh, where we started shortening duration of the portfolio. By that we mean um, we didn't want to have as much fixed um, rate 
type of credit exposures. So a lot of our exposures went to the floating rate. So we invested in private credit in PIMCO and things called like um, and leverage loans, which were all short duration. So three month um, sort of uh, pegged to three month rates plus a margin. And so when interest rates rise, continues to rise, we got the benefit of that base rates expanding over time. So, so our duration in the portfolio is actually really low from the credit standpoint, meaning that we get the benefit of rising interest rates. At the same time, our real assets portfolio being uh, more, you know, directly linked to um, uh, sort of core inflation characteristics. So we've got a lot of energy generation in the portfolio that's linked to inflation. Uh, we invested in solar renewables, we invested in transport assets. Um, all of these things we'll see as kind of a direct correlation of of, of ticket prices being, you know, um, and energy prices being fed back into corporate earnings. And uh, and so from an inflation perspective, I think we're about 30 to 35 percent of the portfolio directly linked to some sort of benefit for rising inflation, which was the view that we took a, a little while ago. Um, as we roll through that cycle, and I'm not sure when that finishes, my crystal ball is probably as good as anyone's. <laughs> um, but I think we need to watch where um, corporate earnings get to and, and how much of um, all of this um, sort of, you know, I guess quantitative tightening that happens, uh, you know, uh, credit markets are continuing to be, you know, tighter, businesses are finding it harder to raise capital. Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of, of structural changes in, in labor going on around the world. Uh, and I think, you know, when, when the market feels like those um, are, are being kind of put into perspective around corporate earnings uh, and the central banks can then say, Do you know what, we're going to move into, um, kind of a position where we're either going to keep rates the same or start lowering them, um, I think then we'll start sort of feeling a little bit more comfortable around inflation. But I don't think we've seen signs of that just yet. Um, and, uh, and I'm of the view that we're probably going to see further hikes uh, to kind of keep inflation at bay and, and really to kind of deal with the core inflation problem. Because right now, I think parts of the, of the inflation indicators are showing signs of easing, but core inflation is continuing to rise. Thank you. Thank you. So m- moving on now, but it'd be good if, if we may to, to summarize some of the the holdings that you've been buying this year, Nalika. And do you have any particular holdings that are exciting you at the moment, which you've bought recently? Yeah, I think um, there's, there's lots of, I mean, as you can imagine, it's a diversified portfolio. So there's lots of really interesting things going on because we've, we've chosen them and curated them for this portfolio. Um on the private side, um, I'm just really excited about the boring stuff, to be fair. <laughs> um, you know, we, we are collecting rent uh, and interest payments uh, from companies, and that um, you know that comes regularly back to us, which we dividend out each quarter. Um, and if I just talk about some of the types of investments in there, so uh, as I mentioned, we've got uh, you know exposure to um, um, a, a big solar farm in Poland, which is just generating you know energy in a, in a sustainable format. Uh, which comes through our SLCI2 program, which is the SL Capital Partners infrastructure program that we have. We have a, um, a, a global, what we describe as concession infrastructure program. So concessions are things that we sell to governments and, and that involves um, schools, hospitals, um, you know, transport assets linked to kind of long-term contracts. And they're just paying, paying their rent and it's inflation adjusted. So we've got a light rail system in Canberra in Australia. We've got um, schools in Western Australia and a stadium in Perth. Uh, which we've talked about in the past, but they're really interesting, you know, sort of assets in of themselves. Some of the newer investments that we've made over the course of um, the last 18 months have come through our more emerging market programs where uh, we've invested in, in ports in Colombia, um, hospitals in Mexico, where we just get generating really high yields uh, for building essential services um, in emerging market countries and in LATAM particularly. 
So I'm really excited about those just being, uh, you know, inflation linked. So, you know, as, as inflation rises, we get paid for the cash flows. They're, they're long term in nature and very steady, very low risk of defaults because countries, you know, require essential services and, and energy. So, you know, we're, we're really keen on those. Um, and then um, in, in terms of sort of interesting um, topics at the moment, um, for those that have been following, uh, we have an, um, an investment in, in healthcare royalties, which have um, um, definitely been performing well post-COVID. You know, the patents environments are changing, lots of, you know, uh, pharmaceutical engine you know, developments around the world. So we've got uh, an investment in healthcare royalties, which we're really excited about. Um, and um, and Burford Opportunity, which is a, a litigation finance um, proposition, which, it, you know, it doesn't matter what's happening in the economy, um, you know, financing of court cases, um, it's going to be sort of uncorrelated with equity markets. And they announced earlier this year that one of their most significant cases being kind of a, um, a case in Argentina where some assets have been nationalized from a listed company uh, was going to go um, in favor of, of uh, the claimants, uh, which saw you know, that portfolio being written up significantly this year. So, uh, so that's a really interesting um, uh, sort of opposition, you know, opportunity in of itself. And the, the other one that I'm really sort of, you know, it's interesting in of itself to, for people to get their heads around is, our investments in, in GPs, in, in general partners or the managers of private market assets. So we have an investment called Bonacord Capital and Bonacord invests in the private market managers. So if we think about the growth of private markets over the last 15, 20 years to almost somewhere close to 10 trillion of assets, more capital has gone into private markets than has gone into public markets over the last two decades. So if you think about how much equity has been raised in the, you know, in, on IPOs, um, uh, the public markets have only really delivered um, a third of the capital um, that's gone into into building companies, and so these managers are generating um, returns off investors that have invested with them, and we actually earn a share of their performance fees uh, when they deliver performance as well. So, ADIC okay. has this really interesting um, set where we're investing in the assets, but we also get a return stream from the managers, and uh, and Bonacore Capital is our is our access route into that. So, re- really sort of diversified basket of assets. We've got some really boring. Uh, high quality stuff, which investors should be really pleased about that in this environment provides really stable growth. Um, But we've got some things um, that when the market pivots, um, we could really show some really strong upside for us. And, um, and, you know, whilst it's not a huge part of the portfolio, um, you know, sort of 15, 20%, um, that could move the needle into the back end of 23, 24. So, uh, you know, we've got lots of really stable, high quality, high yielding fixed income and real assets, which is you know, 50 plus percent of the portfolio. And then we've got these really pockets of, you know, exciting growth. Um, so when markets, uh, you know, um, are more conducive, we'll, uh, we'll take advantage of. Thank you very much. So just to finish off now, uh, if you may, would you be able to summarize the dividend policy, please? Uh, Nalika, in terms of what you know, what you're paying out, how that's uh, evolved over recent years, and, and what your target payout is to, to investors. Yeah, so we, we aim to pay out essentially all of our natural income um, in the portfolio. The board um, have a a view around sort of de- dependable income is the way they describe it. So you know, they when they set the dividend policy, we, we're just really supporting them with generating the earnings that could do that for for them, and um, and since you know, kind of evolving the strategy over the last few years, we've been able to uh, just really provide them a really stable platform for, for income growth. And um, it's currently sort of 5.4 pence per share. And and that allows us to, you know, for them to, to grow that dividend over time. And, and so far, we've been really pleased to be able to do that. Thank you very much. So, Nalika, thank you very much for, for joining us on the podcast today. No, thank you for having us. Um, really great to chat.
So just as a final note to, to listeners, do check out the notes to this podcast where there'll be a link through to the ADIG website. You'll be able to find more information about, of course, the Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth Trust. You can download the fact sheets and have a look at those holdings that we've just discussed there in more details. So, Nanika, thank you very much once more and thank you very much to everyone for listening. Yeah, thanks all. Thank you. This podcast was presented by Oanda, Trading View's most popular broker. Trade with Oanda and get one year subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.